We're now ready to begin the final session of uh, our seminar. You'll see there's been a little bit of moving round of the furniture. Uh, this is because there's a presentation included, uh, a visual presentation included in this uh, session, uh, provided the technology works. Uh, my name is Keith Jenkins. Until I retired some years ago, I was the Associate General Secretary of the Conference of European Churches and was responsible uh, for the representation of Anglican, Protestant and Orthodox churches uh, towards the European institutions in Brussels and Strasbourg. In that context, I discovered um, Adam von Trott and some of his very prescient um, understandings of what might be needed in Europe after the end of the war. And much of his experience came out of his uh, time with the World Student Christian Federation. And I feel confident that had he survived the war, he would have been part of that generation of European leaders uh, who, drawing on Christian inspiration, were at the foundation of the Europe, what is now the European Union. People like the German Catholic Konrad Adenauer, the French Catholic Robert Schumann, uh, the Belgian Protestant Jean Rey, and even the humanist Jean Monnet. And so uh, it is out of that that, for some of us, the European, what is now the European Union has become something which needs to have and certainly has had, and we hope it still has, an ethical and spiritual dimension. That it is a community of values, values such as justice, democracy, human rights, and a community of peace and reconciliation and a body which seeks to, to reconnect with the peoples of Europe, as we had some of the examples in earlier sessions of ways in which the European Union and its member states are not connected with the concerns of people. That's enough self-indulgence on my part. Uh, we need to turn to our session this afternoon. And the logic we followed in planning the seminar was that we started with a British perspective, we moved on to a German perspective, and in this last session we want to bring in the wider perspective. And for that our speaker will be Professor Calypso Nicolaidis, who is a citizen of both France and Greece, um, was educated in France and in the United States, taught at Harvard uh, before coming to Oxford as Professor of International Relations and as a Fellow of St. Anthony's College in 1999. She's the author of many articles and books on European politics, of which the most recent was European Sto Stories, Intellectual Debates on Europe, in national context. But as she's not simply an academic, 
She's been involved in policy making as an advisor to the Greek Foreign Minister and a member of the Reflection Group, chaired by Spain's former Prime Minister, Felipe González, uh, which made a report on the future of Europe in a time frame of 2020 to 2030. So I think that she is uh, well qualified to speak to us on the future prospects. The respondent will be Dr. Hartmut Meyer, who <clears throat> was educated widely in Germany, the United States, Britain and Italy, and before taking up uh, an academic career, he was more in the real world, if I dare say that in Oxford, uh, as a, a, a journalist on radio and television and in newspaper world. In 1998, he came to St. Peter's College, Oxford, where he's fellow and tutor in <coughs> politics and international relations. So without further ado, I will hand over to Professor Nicolaitis. Hi, I hope you'll excuse my sexy voice because I have a bit of a cold these days. And I just want to start by saying thank you, Keith, and thank you all of you. I accepted this invitation to speak today with special pleasure. Um, and I want to explain to you why by sharing two personal thoughts before we start. The first has a name, Max Heinacht. He was my grandfather, and he was one of the leaders of the resistance in Erfurt. Um, planted the French flag when Erfurt was liberated there. Um, and indeed, I like to think that he only had very few degrees of separation with Adam von Trott. So if you allow me, I also have my thoughts of remembrance for him too today. The second person is his daughter, Jose Manuard who left France after the war to go and study in Göttingen. In Göttingen. And in Göttingen, um, she reiterated her belief that never again will she ever sing a national anthem, be that of France or, Ger or Germany, the two countries she came from, but only always say she was a European, and this was in 1945. So you can see that there are some reasons why I'm being here. Now, maybe it was to cut her Gordian knot that I ended up marrying a Brit. Um, but there it is. And that may be also why I'm particularly um, keen. Indeed, I was keen to, to entitle my presentation for you today, European Awakening. Because I think as all of our speakers said today, and David Hanna said started us on this, we owe Adam von Trapp, and we owe his generation, and we owe the commemoration that we're going through in the next year or two, absolute and unrelenting optimism. Optimism of the heart and optimism of the will. And so the collective question we need to ask ourselves is what will it take for European awakening? What will it take to echo Rudolf earlier for Europe to be a Europe that Britain can say yes to, a Europe that the Greeces of this continent can avoid saying oh to, and a Europe that indeed Germany can applaud along with all of its neighbors. 
That's the kind of Europe we want to think through. Now, I think the previous panels showed us that politics is not always what it seems. Oh, in passing, I want to thank Jan, who's um, stepped in as the technology was uh, slightly problematic. So thank you, Jan. And you might, we've never done this before, so this is a bit interesting. Uh, Rudolf would tell us that, indeed, politics are not in Europe, but it seems this is healthy skepticism, not triumphalism. This is François applauding to, uh, to Angela's uh, success. And this is, you know, those two sharing their great disappointment about each other, as we've been talking about earlier, right? So we, we are all enmeshed in European politics and trying to figure it out. But what I want to do today is indeed tr try to share with you some of the you know, academic, let's not call them theoretical, you know, conceptual. I, I'm very careful these days because Keith mentioned I was in this group, reflection group, which was cool, a group of wise men, believe it or not, and my little daughter would always say, Mom, how can you a wise man? You're neither one nor the other. And so I certainly won't pontificate about theories and stuff, but what I try to do academically is to use theory and concepts and try to connect them with some of our basic intuitions. And so please bear with me as I spend a bit of time with you today asking the basic questions but trying to do this with theory. So the basic question for us is what to do when Europe is burning? Sorry, I know, so it's my second um, What is to do? What to do with, when Europe is burning? And indeed, uh, we have been trying to figure it out for the last three, four years. And what we've been witnessing is, and I, I think all of the panels we've heard today demonstrate the mind-boggling shift we've had to go through from a previous Europe, which was this Europe, the EU's raison d'etre, spreading democracy across the continent, and my other country, Greece, knows this very well. From this Europe to another Europe, to that Europe, that Europe of democratic preemption. That's the Europe that many citizens, at least in the South, see these days. <coughs> so, the question we have, is how did we get there and what is to be done about it? So indeed, Europe is burning, but let me rephrase the question for us. The challenge in the shadow of the crisis is to ask about Europe's legitimacy, its democratic character, anchoring in its people. I would suggest as an exercise in democratic interdependence. How do we think through European democratic interdependence? And how do we do so while remaining a single political order on this continent? That's the big question for us. Now, the way we can think about this question is to go back to the, to the basics. Now, David Markham eloquently did this for us earlier today, but let's go back to the traditional, if you were taking a course with me on European integration, and I was trying to wake you up with these nice slides, but I still go back to you know, the basics. The basics is that we always you know, study Europe along this classic spectrum. 
that Europe, we all know, is somewhere in between an association of sovereign states, a la Concert of Europe's 19th century, and a federal state, a la United States. We're somewhere in between, aren't we, right? Well, for me, the story is a bit different. The story is, was for Europe and has been, in fact, for a long, long time, and you could go back to that, has been the question of how do you not cross the Rubicon? See, this is a Rubicon. You can, I don't know if all the way back there you can see their little bubbles. It's hard to find on the Mac when you the right, you know, iPhone, but here it is. The question is how does Europe not cross the Rubicon between the land of anarchy, but we've known with Westphalia for 400 years, where still you have cooperation, alliances, but you have empires, you have states, billiard ball, power politics, and all that to the land of unity, where you'll have one state, one federal state. How do you not trust this Rubicon? And indeed, historically, at the foundation, this is the story that was negotiated in the 40s and the 50s, after the war. And you have, you know, many in this country, but also elsewhere, who wanted to uphold the traditional state system, the sovereignists, at peace, but nevertheless, and those, the radical federalists, no, gosh, Nation states have killed us, we need to transcend the system of European states. Thank goodness for Europe. Um, neither side won. And what we had in Europe instead, after these harsh negotiations of the 40s and 50s, is the victory of the moderate federalists, those who wanted to transform the system of states. Neither uphold it nor transcend it. And indeed, in doing so, uh, they entered what I call transformative logic. They entered the logic of what we now have as a union. Long story, but the key to this story is that they managed to avoid the mimetic logic. That would have been to say, we will reproduce at the European level the nation state writ large. And instead, they didn't cross the Rubicon, but they didn't stay on the banks either. They entered the Rubicon and got their feet wet. And we are still on this Rubicon. The story of the EU is how we managed till today to not cross the Rubicon towards a federal state, but navigate this Rubicon instead. And that's a very different logic. Why is it a different logic? Well, because let's conceptualize this. What you start to understand here, theoretically, is that the two other camps share something very deep in common. They might both be on the two beds, but they both share a sense that democracy, here we, in, in Oxford, we do classics, don't we? So we all know that demos means the people, and democracy is about one people, except these guys, they want the demos to be at the national level, and those guys, they want the demos to be at the European level. But they share a fundamental belief that democracy equals one people. And my contention is that a union, the EU as we've built it, is a democracy in the making. Classicists in the room, demoi, we're all of demos, a union of peoples. So what the EU is in the making, imperfectly, has been from the beginning, is the attempt to create a union of peoples or a democracy. And that's really the trend, why this is a national logic Supranational logic, here the emphasis is on the transnational, the horizontal. The opening up of peoples to one another without trying to transcend themselves into one people. So that's the kind of 
challenge that Europe has been faced with, is how to build a democracy on the continent as defined uh, as a union of peoples, both states and citizens who govern together but not as one. Now you may say, hey, you know, hey, big deal, you're just saying what we always hear, and what we've heard before in this very uh, session today. The good old story about unity and diversity. Yeah, 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 sure, that's what this is all about. Now these were the European heads of states in 1957. The next slide I, I love, you know, this is Europe today. <laughs> and you can't read from the back there, but you know, thé avec d'orange, café décaféiné, avec sucre sans sucre, à la menthe, léger, café au lait. They all want a different coffee, right? That's our European, but that, that's kind of not the point. Democracy is not about cultural diversity. Sure, that's kind of nice, or you know, diversity in taste. Democracy is about the fact that Europe is about common projects. It's all about commonality, but underpinned by togetherness, community of value, but in different colors, accent, taste, standards, politics, social bargains. All our states have different political, social bargains, role of union, trade-offs between old and young. All of these things are different among our country. The very fabric of politics in our nation states are different. Somebody said earlier, nation states on the go. I think David Markman said that. We may agree to disagree on this one, David. You know, states, also sub-states and region, but there are groups that have different tastes and accents. That's why we do the single market as mutual recognition and not harmonization. That's why we do energy in that way too, and I would come back to it with no time. That's why we should have done the monetary union in that way too. Uh, <clears throat> maybe a single euro, but not a single monetary policy, one size fits all. So coming back to my Rubicon though, no, there's a bit more to all this than simply unity and diversity. The story I'm telling you is a story that's grounded in deep, deep normative uh, principles and theories. Point is, when we navigate the Rubicon, we've done so with a normative compass. And this normative compass, I, I translate just to simplify with two fundamental rules that we, norms that we all know. The first one, is transnational non-domination. Very clear, what is, for 400 years, Europe has been the, the victim of bullies who are trying to, Napoleons and Bismarck's trying to control their fellow Europeans. So we all, after the war, all Europeans knew that how we translate peace, you know, we, we, we're gonna have here for two years, next two years, people say, ah, yeah, young people don't care about war and peace anymore, that's not the issue. First of all, I think, that would be a wrong thing. I think new generations are totally aware of the importance of war and peace. But moreover, we need to think about peace in much more subtle ways. What are the underlying norms underpinning peace? Well, the first one is not transnational non-domination. You don't try to dominate your neighbor. Then not only that, but you care about, when you do that, the compass is not just about horizontal non-domination. Germany versus the rest, or France versus the rest, but it's about vertical. It's about being very careful that this concern you have about the continent that doesn't have horizontal domination doesn't tr turn into vertical domination by the whole Brussels replaces Berlin. No, no. The second principle, normative principle, 
behind democracy or our union is transnational mutual recognition. You know, war is about the denial of recognition of the identity of the other. It's memory, everything, all the way to killing them. And this continued after the war. We actually know it, that millions were killed after World War II by their neighbors. It's a very, it's a story Paul Betts could go much more into. So this is how we, and there, on all of this, there's much more to say. So we have, we can think always as our search for a peaceful coexistence on our continent as underpinned by these two principles, and that's what it's all about today, to this day. Now, we have a problem, don't we, in Europe? We have many problems, sure, many problems. Let me summarize them as three problems. First problem is that, yeah, you're great. You're, you're, you're doing this, you know, we're going to be partners. Um, so, that's, so the first problem is the eternal hegemonic trope. Um, you know, when I was at the convention, Constitutional Convention, I remember hearing Giscard saying, oh God, we're so sick and tired of these Belgians and Dutch and Greeks, you know, these little countries, who do they think they are? We'll, we'll tell them what I've heard of it. He, he thought I was Greek, he wasn't realizing it was French also, and understanding everything he could say. In the Presidium, where I was in Papandre, it was fascinating. The contempt of the big states, so often, and I'm not talking about Germany, I'm really talking more about my, about my native friends. For this little state, the hegemonic trope of Europe is always with us. Second problem that we always have to bear in mind is what we can call, what my old friend Joseph Weider called, messianism in Europe. The idea of an elite that in the name of an end, unity of the continent, they can trample on, on the peoples. You know, it's like this girl, she didn't really mean to say no. She was wearing a mini skirt, God, you know. She didn't really mean to say no. That's what we told the Irish when they said no the first time. Our elites, you know, they've listened to Bertolt Brecht. Have you guys recognize our good, good students? Remember what he said? You know, if you're not happy with what the peoples decide, just re-elect the peoples. That's the way European elites think. And there was a whole story that is very popular in this country, but also true, not only the case, about the EU, about technocratic preemption and all the rest of it. And you can tell the beginnings of the EU. Monet was great, but he hated democratic politics. He really did, trust me. I know, great and stuff. So, that's the second problem. The third, perhaps the biggest, is what I call the obsession uh, with oneness or oneness envy in Europe. And oneness envy is, of course, something that relates to our transatlantic affair, our transatlantic envy. And, you know, these guys, we vibrate when Obama says one country, one constitution, one destiny. Oh, if only we could, you know. So we like to think the solution to all our problems would be one state, one president, one government, one people, one story, one voice. That's why the European story is plural. So, you know, if we had time, I would go through with you the reasoning about Demoy. You know, because very regularly intellectuals, including, you know, Habermas, we all love him, you know, decree the European people is born, single people. That was true when they all marched, we all marched against the Iraq war, was said, European Demos is born. Next, 
Uh, European Demos is born when everybody across frontier demonstrates against austerity. European Demos is born. You know, I mean, I the point about democracy in Europe is not so much that there is no European Demos. That might be true too. But there is a bit of European demos, and we all feel European to some extent. The point is that the then moi, the peoples, are in other identities, are politically, perhaps not culturally or otherwise, stronger. They define the field. And so, of course, you can't just say, oh, Europe is full of then moi, it's all about the plurality. No, because kratos matters. You know, classics, democracy, what we do together. That's what democracy is about. And indeed, it's not any old demoi, any old peoples that somehow do things together. It's peoples that need to change themselves and their mindset in order to do these things together. And that was said earlier too. So, you know, if we had time, because I know we have little time, or if you were taking my course, or whatever, I would go through with you many of the debates and questions that all of this rise Historically, you know, how did we uh, built a little by little European democracy without democrats. People weren't really thinking in that way. I will tell you a story that we do in legal theory, there may be lawyers among you, about constitutional pluralism. You know, we have a constitution a bit like, uh, we do have a constitution in Europe, although it's not formal, it's just like Britain, like a state, but we're pluralistic. You know, how do we navigate on the Rubicon in legal terms? How we do so? Um, in institutional terms, exit and voice, or you know, in terms of the governance of the EU, that we, we haven't crossed the Rubicon and made the Commission, you know, our government, the European Parliament, our Parliament, and the Council, our Senate. No, no, we've built something quite different. Where real power in Europe is around the European Council, around that table of European state. It's a deeply institutionalized concert of nation, concert of Europe. So, but I'm not going to tell you this story because we have no time. I could tell you the story about philosophy, about, you know, Kant. Kant was the first Democrat. You know, he would have seen Europe and maybe recognized it, we don't know, we can't speak in his stead, because he really believed that hospitality and cosmopolitanism had to be anchored in state capacity. Philosophers among you will know what I'm talking about. But I would then land, if I had the time, to really what should occupy us today. Is this democracy a non-stable equilibrium? What about the forces of fission and fusion? And that's what we are seeing with the crisis today. What we're seeing today with this crisis, coming back to Britain and Germany, sorry, um, before, no, before, before, sorry, uh, next. Sorry, no, no, next, next. No, no. <laughs> Continue. Yeah, uh, next. <laughs> next. And next. Uh, is, and huge forces of fission and fusion. And next. <laughs> See, sometimes the. It's not perfect. So, the story we've heard earlier is that really we are over between a German temptation of, of looking for unity instead of union, and, a, and Britain's demon, fragmentation instead of union. 
And so in a way, you can think that if Britain and Germany can agree, can agree to stay and navigate in the Rubicon, you know, we're home drive, I can mix metaphor. But this is a really, really hard call. Why? Well, the problem starts, I guess, with Germany. And this is not in a bad way. But what we've seen in Europe during the crisis, to summarize, is really that basically, like Messianism said, wow, thank you, we have an alliance with the market. We can ride the bull of the market and unhitch European democracy to become a union, to become, sorry, a united Europe as we've always dreamt. The ends justify the means, we have a crisis that allows us to do that. And in doing so, they lead to the inevitable pulling out of national democracies. That has to be the case. Now, there are all sorts of ways in which this has happened, and in, in the ways in which the messianic pursuit of unity against union has used this crisis. And I'm not going to go into this, but what we know is that they have been, had they, these ways have led to the anger that we witnessed and we witnessed uh, before, and the shutting up of people. And in a way, you can summarize this, just summarize it very simply in a few images. The first is the great merger. The fact that, you know, Rudolf was asking earlier, you know, what else? You know, what's wrong with telling countries not to have debt? I agree, Rudolf, but what we're seeing today is something slightly different. The great merger is that between, well, you might not recognize the IMF and the White House. That's really what's happening in Europe today, that really, the Troika and the Commission are becoming one, or EU institution. That is, EU institutions, which are polity, they're about togetherness, they're about us, they're about the legitimacy of a single polity, are lending their legitimacy, quickly, quickly hollowed, to a conditionality logic, which is a separate logic. Troika, IMF, that's a different logic. That's one way to do this, because you need to give us our money back. But never does the New York State do this to, you know, California. You don't do this within a polity. That's the problem we're facing today. In other words, we're facing a problem of what I call German schizophrenia. That's ox, by the way. And there are ox, you know, Germans, rightly so in my view, I mean, also an economist, you know, would say, you know, there's moral hazard. If we just give money to people, they'll, you know, these Greeks will spend for it you know, take our credit card and the passcode and we'll never see it again, so we understand that. Not only that, if we let them do this, you know, there'll be contagion. That's really bad. Problem is, the dogs, you know, they've got to justify things to the dogs. And the dogs tell them, ha, well, that's a problem because there's also political contagion. You know, everybody gets very unhappy across Europe if you do that and tell everyone what to do. And altogether, they, these who believe in moral hazard and therefore disciplines, and those who believe, yeah, but we can't be too harsh, say, well, we have to have more and more union to legitimize the whole package. It's an unrelenting logic. But, there's a big but, and it starts with German schizophrenia. That's, you know, somebody raised the question in the previous panel about the eternity clause. I don't have the same exact same rating on the, on the German Supreme Court, Constitutional Court. I've written about this. But I think it's actually a deep issue because the eternity clause in German constitution does say 
It's German's constitutional promise to itself, thou shalt not be part of, Europe, of a Europe that becomes a state. You're right, Rudolf, it might be that it's okay if there's... Okay, we'll have, we'll have the debate. We'll have the debate. I've had it with many, Dieter Grimm in particular, who actually wrote the Maastricht uh, 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 statement of the court. So it's a very big debate. But the point is, forget about you know, the, the, the very small legalities of this. Not just German Supreme Court, I mean the Portuguese Supreme Court, all Supreme Courts around Europe are expressing the same thing. There is such a thing as national constitutional identity. In fact, it's even in the Lisbon Treaty. And that identity cannot be, I mean, we are trying to protect, but we're also telling national parliament to do that. So that's the German schizophrenia. Now, I think that in face of that, the question we're facing is whether, with all of this crisis, we are therefore, more in the atmospheric, really losing our compass in Europe. And the losing of our compact is not, is, is not about German leadership. All politics need leadership. And German leadership is crucial to Europe, in my view, especially if it's chair leadership. And when you hear German, you know, German state of mind, and those of you in the room, many of you know better than me, and Rudolf expressed it brilliantly, um, Germany, this is what it's all about. It's all about fearing so much horizontal domination that we are going to create vertical domination. The problems for the Brits is that they fear so much vertical domination by Brussels that they kind of shrug their shoulders about risks of horizontal domination on the continent, although historically they never did this before. So the problem in Europe has to do with all the tensions that this creates, including at the level of the way in which peoples relate to each other, what I call lost in translation. The, and, and we're working on this at my center these days, mutual perceptions and newspapers, and all of these denials of recognitions um, between, between Greeks and Germans and what it means. And, <clears throat> And indeed, you know, I love this comparison between people and European climate. Everything is lost in translations these days in Europe. So the question becomes, can we stay on the Rubicon? Um, and I was really peeved um, by Rudolf's you know, vision that I would translate what you said, Rudolf, in this following way. Um, yes, we can. Rudolf's multi-tier union. We can stand the we can have a multi-tier union where groups of countries do different things as long as, even though we're in different places on the Rubicon, you know, we are part of one single union. And the way to do that is what I, what I call the three R's. You know. uh, a single party political order with differentiated, it's restraint. So there's always a thing, restraint on monetary union. Trust me, because I don't have time, but there's all sorts of ways of doing monetary union that are not centralized. They're about internalizing incentives, internalizing externalities, decentralized management. Basically, um, so I don't, I don't think monetary union necessarily needs to be saved by extreme centralization. We could come back to that. 
The second point for the EU as a whole is reform, and indeed, you discussed this in the previous panels, but when, you, when Britain, but not only Britain, talks about repatriation, the whole of the EU should talk about cycles of federalism. If you study federalism, you know that, you know, competences go up and down. The EU is high time that we learn this in Europe today. Differentiated cooperation, all of these things can be done for the EU as a whole, not as an exception to Britain, but that, that was said. And finally, revival, that we need, RIDs need to learn to move from democratic institutions, the council, the parliament, da, 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 to democratic politics. And um, there are traditional ways of doing this. I call them gimmicks. You know, oh, we'll have a president this or that, like Red Games and Gladiator. There, so there, there are those who say, oh, let's do these uh, in Brussels. There, there's another group of people, like Habermas and Beck, that you know well, who only talk about bottom-up democracy. Now, I think these visions are not enough. What we really need is a much more detailed idea of what democratic politics should be in Europe. And democratic politics have to do more, first and foremost, about the primacy of national democracies, that Europe should not only respect, do no harm to national democracies, but should find ways of empowering them, including national parliaments. Europe should be about various mixing together in, 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 in creative ways, and thanks to the internet, various modes of representation, not one or the other. Direct democracy, uh, where you don't have your little referendum in one corner and another in another. You talk to one another when you have referendum, etc. Lots of ideas. You can think about it yourself. You know, you think about it yourself. You don't need me. So to conclude, three messages that I just want to leave you with, that I want to you know, think about. First of all, that European legitimacy and democracy is not just about EU level, but that's what's happening inside each of our countries, inside each of our national politics. That's why the current debates in this country and elsewhere matter. Um, but if, if that's the case, then citizens need to learn to connect their debates with other national debates. And the job of the Commission, indeed, is to make it possible and more easy to do that. The second message is that if we can find a democratic third way, a way to stay on the Rubicon, to offer an inclusive vision for European politics at the national level, and including, this is, this is a, a Danish you know, uh, equivalent of UK, prettier for the leader. Uh, now, that's crucial to me, to develop a vision, because so-called Eurosceptics, somebody earlier was talking about how skepticism was the key to all things. Indeed. So Eurosceptics are often the ones who pose the best questions to us, and we need to listen to them. But there are red lines that not all Eurosceptics are born equal. You know, there are reasonable disagreements and those that are not. But nevertheless, we need to have the kind of vision for Europe that has room for moderate Euroscepticism. And my third message, uh, and the one I want to leave with you, is that you know, if you want to uphold this promise of union, short of unity, I hope I have made clear, but it, it had to be impressionistic, that Germany and 
Britain, in their very different ways of believing in decentralization, subsidiarity, local politics, constitutional identity, and all of these things, can lead the way to reinvent a new kind of democracy beyond the state in Europe. And Hersher and I hope a European spring. And so after the fire, there will be the spring, but we must get rid of our European demons, the messianism, the, the elitism, the hegemony, these ways of othering that have been so lethal for us. And if we can all do this, I think that the spirit of Adam von Trott will stay with us and hopefully for many, many, many decades to come. Thank you. Thanks, Calypso. Um, Calypso and I have been working together for a long time. And I was one of her deputies when she served in the Philippine Science Reflection Group. And um, ever since Bob Marley, um, I shot the sheriff, but I didn't shoot the deputy. I'm very happy to play the role of the deputy, in particular um, to such an excellent speaker as Calypso. So my role as a deputy is just sharing a few comments. But I'm also the last speaker um, on a day where we remember Adam von Trott. And I was in Mansfield College in 2004 when the Memorial Appeal started and Timothy Garden-Esch gave this wonderful lecture, one of the most impressive historical lectures I've heard and I've been in Oxford for about 20 years. And the people who started this and continue this, I want to thank them once again for all their work. And there's nothing better one can do is remembering great men and trying to translate the message of the great ideas to the next generation. So thanks again. Um, also we heard from from the representative of the German Embassy, the real challenge is how do you translate history into the presence and what you do with that. And one of the things that I always try to do is to ask myself, what is my relation, my personal relationship to that history? And when I was introduced as someone who has lived in the real world, I was a journalist and I was with Dean Zeit, and Marion Greifert-Dönhoff was a personal friend. And she, she, in the first conversations I had with her, asked me, how is Adam remembered in Oxford in this very, very um, impressive moment. And she was committed um, to writing about the 20th of July every year in its height on the 20th of July. And you cannot overestimate the importance of the impact the group had on the development of German democracy. And it's not only that the spirit of resistance but also the ideas that are translated and lived through people are so much alive and have, some, have done such a great service to all of us who are here today. So I'm very, very grateful. And as Calypso says, she remembers um, sort of her own grandfather as part of the resistance in Erfurt. And it's very important to relate your family history to these events and then you see what impact it has. And in my family, and that's maybe Typical. I have people who resisted and I have people who participated. Right? Volunteers in the Nazi regime and people who ended up in the concentration camp. And that tension runs through the history. And it's important to see that we have the role models, but we also have at the same time people who suffered and people who made different choices. And that makes the choice that Adam von Trump made even more impressive. I relate very much to that spirit and please carry it on. But these are my opening remarks. Now it's about, um, again, 
speaking for the people, right? Because you said you lived in the real world and let's find the people. What I found very impressive today is the historical range, it's the analytical ability, it's the emotional commitment we had, but it was to some extent skeptical and slightly depressed. And it's sort of, where is Europe? Have we lost our compass? Have we lost everything in translation? Do we have that tension between Germany and Britain? What do we do with it? When I look back, at the time of Adam von Trott and the time we have here, and if I look at the young people, and if I live through, and I was an undergraduate in Berlin when the wall came down, and if I compare all of this to what we have today, why are we so skeptical about the future? In particular, because when we look at the European project and when we look at what happens outside Europe, people look at Europe and say, yeah, they have their problems. Yes, the financial crisis is important. Yes, there are questions about democracy. But on the whole, it's a fantastic success story that we should never forget. And if I talk to being middle-aged, you have disadvantages when you play football. It doesn't look too great anymore. But you have the advantage that you relate to the young people and relate to the Marion Griffin Dönhoffs and so on. And what I see, such a natural European without thinking about democracy and this and that. Every day in Oxford, every day in Hamburg, every day in Berlin, where the Germans who came 25 years ago to Britain were very different from the Germans who come today. My students ask me, do you remember the Cold War? And that's not, of course I do remember, but when I told the story to Peter Pulzer when he started teaching German politics here, he said in 1968 people didn't remember 1938. That, that's normal. But how the historical legacies are translated and the advantages that people have in Europe today, we shouldn't forget when we talk about big ideas about democracy about the future of German-British relations and so on. And I think I want to send that positive message that the natural Europeans, back to the people, every Tuesday, every Wednesday, we all in Europe watch the Champions League. This is a European moment because we're all watching the same and we're not thinking about the institutional structure, we are there. And there is Zlatan Ibrahimovic who came from Bosnia, became a Swede, becomes Dutch champion, becomes Italian champion, Spanish champion with Barcelona and French champion. He is a European and people don't think about that. Without the Bosman ruling and the court, there wouldn't be Zlatan Ibrahimovic playing because the rules. And what I'm trying to say is the real challenge, and this came out in the politicians' speeches this morning, and I can because they say oh, all these immigrants and so on. The real challenge is to translate to the people what Europe has achieved in a language that the people can understand. And I think the real key, the real key to the future of Europe is national politicians in their national constituencies relating to the European demos but explaining to the people why Europe, even if you think this is a monster, an institutional monster, if you think there is tension, if you think it doesn't work, explain every day why if you didn't have that, your life would be very different can be the story about Yvonne from Devon who needed a hip operation and she couldn't get it in the NHS and she went to France and got it there and she presented the bill and said under European mutual recognition the right to get the hip I got in France you pay for the bill and you can tell stories like that to say you cannot escape from Europe and I tell my students you are and they are Eurosceptic 18 year olds and I'm quite surprised to what extent that is nowadays normal I said if we didn't have Europe, you wouldn't sit here with me. 
you can either think, oh, that's great, I hope we can restrict mobility so that we don't talk to you, or say, oh, I like to talk to you, and mobility, the right to work, and so on. So my message is, we had a wonderful historical, analytical, wide-ranging debate. To me, we had slightly a skeptical view, and a view that is slightly detached from what all the Europeans, despite the problems we have, experience every day. And I think my comments, the compass that we have lost is not necessarily an institutional compass, is not recognizing the achievement we have over time. So these are my comments. I don't want to go into details because you, I think you have a lot of questions to Calypso, and I'm happy to answer questions from my perspective, but it's, I'm only the deputy, she's the speaker, and here um, we open the floor for discussion. So thank you very much.